Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 124 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk all about raised bed gardening with Joe Lample, founder of joegardener.com and author of the vegetable gardening book. The plant profile is on Osage orange trees, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the Washington DC area. This episode, we're joined by Joe Lample, founder and creator of joegardener.com. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's been a while since I've been wanting you to be on, so it's great to finally have you on the Garden DC podcast. It's good to be here. So I know that you have your fingers in many pies, (laughs) many projects, and we'll go into that in some of your uh, things that are coming up and out and talk all about raised bed gardening on today's episode. But first, I think we're going to dial it back all the way back to baby Joe when you were born and to ask if you had chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb at that point. You know, I don't know if it started before I first became aware of uh, having a green thumb, which was eight years old. But, you know, if I had the exposure I did at eight sometime earlier than that, uh, I think I would have been just as passionate, maybe even more. I would have had a few more years head start. But yeah, no, it started early on. I was um, just a kid running around the yard with my dad when he would be out there on Saturdays cleaning up the yard and mowing the grass and edging it because as the youngest of four boys uh, and my next oldest brother was five years older than me, that would have put him at 13 when I was eight. He didn't want to hang out with me. So he's off running around and I'm with my dad, which is great. I love that. I love that father-son time solo. I didn't have to share them. But anyway, to my point, at the end of that day, he had been out there working and trimming bushes and he went inside and I still had lots of energy and I was running around and I ran by a bush that he had been working on and, and had pruned up really nicely, but I broke a branch that was leaning out and I'm like, Oh gosh, what do I do? You know, I don't want to get in trouble, but he wouldn't have done a thing. It would have been fine, but I didn't know, but I just wanted to cover my tracks, you know? And so I just stuck that branch the only thing I knew to do and didn't even know if that would work, but I just stuck it in the ground and put soil around it hmm. and uh, kind of hid my tracks and then went about my business and forgot about it until eight, 10 weeks later or something. I was going by that same area and I, I remembered it jogged my memory that that was the area where I'd broken that branch. And I was just curious what happened to it, expecting it to be a dead branch next to the live bush. And I couldn't find a dead branch until I, narrowed it down to the one that I'd broken and I really couldn't understand why it was sprouting leaves and all of that. But anyway, it just got me so curious about how that happened that I wanted to know more. And, and I just, I was fascinated by that. So that was the, literally the catalyst that got me started in gardening and trying everything under literally under the sun that I could grow, including breaking off or cutting more branches and sticking them back in soil <laughs> It's starting seeds. That's why I did a vegetable garden and roses and all in that year, I think. 
and uh, I was unstoppable. I was unstoppable, but I couldn't, I couldn't get enough. And that has never, that fire that was lit back then is just raging today. And it's, it's just only gotten brighter ever since. And so uh, it's been a fun ride and, and I'm nowhere close to slowing down. Well, definitely the passion is there. Hmm. Yeah. And so you are gardening where? Talk about your climate, maybe your zone and mm-hmm. your soils. Okay. Well, I'm in 7B and uh, I was looking at a climate map today and I I swear we're <clears throat> right on the verge of eight. I'll tell you, I'm in north, I'm just north of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm about 30 mm-hmm. miles north, northeast of downtown. So uh, a northern suburb of Atlanta and uh, we I garden year round here. I've got uh, 16 large raised beds filled with amazing soil that I've been working on since I started those beds 10 years ago as a big believer in soil. You know, I'm always working on that because I believe it's the most important component of a successful garden. So um, my, do you want me to tell you about what's in my gar- soil yet? Or Nah, let, let's save that for a little bit later, but maybe more what you're growing in that great soil. Okay. Well, as a year-round grower, whatever's in season, and for me, this time of year, it's fall, and uh, so I'm, it's actually my favorite gardening season over summer, other than tomatoes, which are give me fits, but I can't not grow them because I just love them that much. So right now I've got really kind of every cool season crop that you can think of pretty much. So all the brassicas, so I've got the broccoli, the collards, the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts, the kohlrabi, the turnips, the spinach. Um, I have arugula and lettuce. I have beets. I have peas. I have sweet potatoes that are left over from summer that haven't been harvested yet. Uh, I've got carrots growing. It's all from memory, and I'm probably missing about five things. But um, I think that I've probably listed most of them. Cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how about any, oh, I was going to say flowers, herbs, or ornamentals? We have a lot of zinnia still in bloom. We have a native uh, perennial garden that borders the gar- borders my garden inside the fence line, so they're you know protected from all the deer that we've got. So um, you know, just a, an assortment of ever always blooming flowers of some you know whatever's in season, and a lot of annuals and natives, and we're continuing to grow that, uh, grow that out and expand that. And we've only really started adding a lot of flowers in the last couple of years with the help of my farm manager Toby, who's an excellent flower grower and and I've needed that help. I haven't had the time to do it all. And my focus has been on food growing. So since she's come on board, um, she's in charge of sort of coming in behind me and making sure things are tidy and neat and weeded. And uh, she's also mainly in charge of the flower part too, because that's, that's her bread and butter and um, she's good at it. Hmm. I think I need a Toby. <laughs> Everyone needs a Toby. You just can't have mine. She sounds fabulous. So a lot of listeners may be familiar with you from your role as host and executive producer of the PBS show, Growing a Greener World. Um, So maybe we should talk a little bit about what else you have cooking. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, It's a lot. So the television series, Growing a Greener World, started in um, 2009 with the pilot. And uh, we just last year wrapped up season 12 consecutive years. Uh, and, uh, this year we're taking a, we're on hiatus just for this year because we have another huge project in the works. That's, uh, keeps me busy on top of that. I've also created the online guardian Academy in 2018, where we 
uh, we make online courses and we go deep on particular subject matters. And so one that I'd always wanted to do was really do a deep dive into organic vegetable gardening because my first television entree was as host of Fresh from the Garden on DIY Network back starting in 2002. And the genius of that show, I was the host, but the genius of the show was um, teaching people how to grow food one crop at a time. So each episode was dedicated to one specific crop and it was everything you needed to know from start to finish, seed to harvest. And uh, it was only slated to be 26 episodes in one year of production, but it went into three years and 52 episodes. And by the end of that time, we were out of stuff to show people how to grow because we'd grown it all. And that's why that's the only reason the show ended when it did. But that was a long time ago. And it was before food really growing food was so popular, you know, nothing like it is today. So it was ahead of its time. But I always felt like the show could have been a little bit a little or a lot better. It was a great show then, but there were things that I would have done differently. And as the host and not the creator of it, I really was working off a script, you know, from freelance writers and it was still good, but I had ideas and inputs and things I wanted, I would have done differently. And so fast forward to 2010, I'm in my place, my farm here in North Atlanta, five acres in a big raised bed garden. And I thought, you know, this is, I've got to do this at some point because I've got to recreate that show basically with my garden and my approach and using organics and things like that. It just took me until this year to commit the time because the television show is keeping us so busy. We couldn't really break away from that. Plus the podcast, the Joe Gardner Show podcast is a, you know, Kathy, how involved that can be every week when you're doing your research and getting the recording down. So there was that. Mm-hmm. And then the speaking and just on and on and on. It's like, I, there's no breathing room here. So the only way to create the course I really wanted to do, and it was a very big endeavor. I mean, all of our courses are pretty deep dives, but this one was going to require pulling the production team off the show and bringing them to my garden every day. So we could film all of that that was growing in my garden all through the year from March through what will probably be late November with every crop and documenting the entire growth process of each one. So there's going to be about 40 featured things that we will have documented by the end of this year from literally seed to harvest. And it's, uh, it's mind numbing the amount of work that we're doing and the people involved and the details and the spreadsheets. And it's like, I wake up and I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, how are we going to get it all done in time? But I don't know. We managed to do it. We've got an amazing team, but it just, uh, I feel like we're running out of time because we're going to launch this early next year. So anyway, all that to say, the plate stays full, and as soon as a little something falls off, something else fills it, then and then some. But uh, we're we're very busy. Oof. I love that analogy of a full plate, and then some piled high, <laughs> then a little dessert plate and some bread on the side. <laughs> oh yeah. And we can't fail to mention you just came out with a new book. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> and so the Vegetable Gardening Book, Your Complete Guide to Growing an Edible Organic Garden from Seed to Harvest. So that might have been similar to the same journey as your TV show where you have to chronicle in photos yeah. uh, the same processes. Yeah, you know, that just is a testament to how busy I am. I totally forgot to mention the book, but I'm glad that's done. That's for sure. It was a real, uh, it was a fun project and I I really hadn't thought about writing another book. That's my third book. And the last one I did was 15 years ago with the Green Gardener's Guide. And I thought I was done. I really did. And, uh, you know, Jessica with Cool Springs Press kept asking me about new titles that she was pitching to me. And I'm like, Jessica, I I love you, but I've told you a bunch. I, I'm not going to be writing another book. And then she came out with the idea. She said, I'm going to do a last pitch to you. 
and you're the one that has to write this book. And I said, well, before you tell me what it is, the story hasn't changed. There's a 99.9% .9 chance I'm not going to write it, but what is it? And then she mentioned the vegetable gardening book. And I thought, oh, why'd you have to say that? Because, you know, that's near and dear to my heart. And I just felt like mm -hmm. I needed to be the one to write it. I wanted to be the one to write it, even though I didn't want to write another book. And I just, I poured myself into it and hunkered down and made it work in the time that I didn't have to do it. And uh, it's out <laughs> there and it's so far so good. People have been loving it. So that makes me very happy. Great. Yeah, I work with Jessica on my, both my books and one coming out next February on ground covers and similar process mm. and similar timing. Just have to like kind of cram it in Yeah. Uh, where it doesn't fit in your schedule already. It's kind of like do it or not at that point. Yes. <laughs> it's a real commitment. Yeah, definitely. So uh, for listeners, I will put a link to that new book in the podcast show notes. And so let's turn our attention now to our topic of the episode, Raised Bed Gardening. And before we dive into the hows, let's talk about why. Why would you want to garden in a raised bed, Joe? Well, um, you know, it's the opportunity that you have to really fine tune the soil that whatever you're planting is growing in because you know our soils are either clay or they're sandy depending on where we live uh, not the majority the majority of us don't have that ideal perfect soil you know that sweet spot mm -hmm. soil so raised beds are just a wonderful opportunity to dial that in however you want to get the soil that you want um, so there's that that's the primary reason here in Atlanta you know Georgia's famous for their red clay which is I'll tell you, it's full of nutrients and minerals and all the stuff that plants love, except that it's heavy, so it doesn't drain well. And for what I grow mostly, which is edibles, they really, really want very well-draining soil. Mm -hmm. So you can't do that in red Georgia clay. So, you know, I put together my soil recipe and fill my beds with it. So that's the first reason for raised beds. But beyond that, they're just, there's the aesthetic aspect to it. I think they look really nice, most of them. Uh, and then the opportunity to get them up off the ground. So um, if you don't love the idea of bending all the way to the ground to tend to your plants and pull the weeds, the raised beds give you an opportunity to get the plants closer to you without totally bending over. And depending on how, on how high those beds are, will dictate you know how much bending you're going to do. Mine are 18 inches high, which is just right because I can I can go down on my knees and bend in and just lean into the bed, and that's perfect. And then when I'm tired, because I have six by six timbers, there, that's a wide enough space for you to sit on the edge of the bed and tend to your bed that way too. So there's some conveniences there as well. And uh, aesthetically, as I mentioned, it, it looks, you know, raised beds can look nice or not, but knowing that I was going to use this garden for my television show and photography and books and things like that, that was an important part of it too. So uh, having it look nice is you know, certainly a compliment to a, a reason to have a raised bed. <laughs> yeah, the aesthetics of it are very visually pleasing. And, you know, having things with borders, always mm -hmm. good in a garden, whether your plant flops over the border, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. But being able to define the border and what's the growing area and what's not is great. And I was also thinking about the warming of the soil. Um at the beginning of the season and the end of the season, you can kind of, I'm going to say three to five degrees. It's not a tremendous amount of warming between that and the ground soil. What have you found? Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, it does make a difference though. Three or five degrees doesn't, you know, I guess relatively speaking, it doesn't sound like that much in the big picture, but to a seed, I mean, it really is amazing how they can detect, uh, you know, 
a few degrees, I guess a few degrees, I don't know, but it does make a difference as to how quickly they get off to uh, an early start or get out of the ground. And um, when you get that soil up and, you know, you've got more exposure to the sunlight, that definitely makes a difference. So that's a, that's a point I haven't thought much about because here in Atlanta, you know, it warms up. I mean, gosh, it's like almost, I, I'm, I'm almost behind by the time I get plants in the ground, it's already warm enough to to get going and every year seems to get a little warmer sooner. So, um, that you, you raise a good point. I just, I just don't think about it that much for the temperature side. Mm -hmm. And you'd already alluded to the control of the soil and the contents of it and the nutrients and everything else a lot easier in a box, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, um, it's nice to be able to work in that sort of that structured place that can find space so that, uh, you know, over the course of the year as you're maintaining your garden with the raised bed, you've got the border or the boundary around it, that containment center. <laughs> so the, all the soil theoretically should stay within it. And, and that certainly keeps it from spilling off onto the walkways and it reduces the waste and it makes it easier to um, refill the confined area that you have for growing and, uh, and that's always helpful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so how about some cons, some drawbacks to being in a raised bed? Well, uh, you know, it can be, depending on what you choose for your raised bed, sourcing that material can be expensive or um, uh, hard to work with. Uh, you know, like, I mean, any, anything that contains the soil qualifies as a raised bed, and yet some options are better than others. Mm -hmm. You know, and depending on your budget, well, that's certainly going to dictate some of your choices and what you use or don't use. And um, there are some things that people use that, you know, maybe isn't the best idea just because the risk that potential health risk and as remote as they may be, for example, old pressure treated wood that had arsenic in it. Certainly that's, that's gone away now with the replacement of copper for arsenic for controlling the, um, the, the, uh, longevity of the wood for water rot, but even, even cinder blocks, I mean, unless you pulverize them, they're very safe. But if you do, then there's, there's fly ash that is carcinogenic that potentially could leach into the, you know, the roots. And I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here because that's, you know, I'm just talking about the mm -hmm. remote possibilities, but there are some depending on the products that you use. And so, there's all these trade-offs, you know, if you're on a low budget, you're going to be limited on some of the options that you use that may not last as long, but at least you've got a raised bed for a period of time, at which point you'll have to change it out. Um, so I forgot your question now. I just started running with it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was just saying any drawbacks to having a raised bed. So yeah, we can definitely pivot now to talk about all the materials that it could be made from. Um, and how uh, we might rank them. And I would say the creme de la creme, right, might be mm -hmm. really nice cedar because um, it resists rot, but it is very expensive now, I think more than ever. It is absolutely very expensive then and more than ever now. Uh, and my beds are six by six untreated cedar timbers. And I get that question a lot when people see pictures of my garden. They say, what wood is that? And so it is in, in um, I fell in love with that wood years ago before I ever had my garden when I was working with Fiskars and we were building raised bed gardens across the country and into Canada, like pop-up community gardens. And we would build the very beds that I have in my garden. That was the design that their engineers came up with that we would put into these community gardens 
I did, I was involved in 13 of those designs and installations across North America. But every time I went on site, you know, a day or two ahead of time and through the end of that day where we did the actual pop-up garden, I was so jealous of everybody that was going to get the garden in those beds because they were so beautiful and so sturdy. And I had always said from the first time I laid eyes on them, I said, if I can ever justify a bed like this, I'm going to do it. But, you know, it was years later when Growing a Greener World, finally we created that and we needed a raised bed garden for the set. And I knew I, there was th this was going to be my one and only chance to justify it. However, I needed to justify it. That was going to be the best possible reason to do it. So I bit the bullet. And as you said, Kathy, it wasn't cheap, but I knew, you know, it would last a long time. It would be a one-time investment. And, you know, we had it in the underwriting budget. So we did it. And um, I never, never regret it. I love it every day. And um, that untreated cedar, especially when you got big pieces like that, does last an amazingly, amazingly long time. And even for us down here in the heat and the humidity and the termites, um, they're holding up very well 10 years later. Good. Yeah, I think you're talking me into making that investment because I've basically just been a scavenger at yeah. my community garden and yeah. when somebody takes apart or dismantles a plot i just grab whatever boards or whatever material they have and just sure. make another edge so i have like a railroad timber on one side yeah. <laughs> a two by four on the other and you know things definitely do rot i i do notice yeah. you know the longevity of the cedars you know that's a good investment because you're not going to have to keep replacing it um every few years so yeah. with the untreated regular plywood or whatever wood that you're grabbing from an old wood pile or something. And you had alluded to the new wood is mm -hmm. not treated. It's treated with, you know, copper, but it's yeah. not going to be a problem for your health. But say you went to a salvage yard or mm -hmm. we're taking down an old house, we should definitely precaution people about that. And also if it was painted, you know, pre-19, I guess, 72 or so yeah. might have lead. So yeah. if you're using up old lumber that way, that's that's going to be an issue. And that's another reason also for a raised bed. If you were putting an in-ground bed in an urban environment in any city across the country prior to that those dates, and there might have been a structure there, when they tore that down, uh, there's a very good chance there's lead-based paint in that soil. And so that's another reason why you would go up into a raised bed than to go back into the ground to just, you know, amend the soil that's in place there natively in the, in the ground. So the good mm -hmm. point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially uh, if it was an old homestead site, as you said, an urban site where it had, you know, car and air pollution mm -hmm. and those heavy metals settling yes. in. So I do see some people on urban sites, they'll put down a couple layers of landscape cloth under it so that that's not the soil below isn't leaching into the beds as well if you plant a root crop or yeah. something. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much information on that study wise or anything like that. Um, and, you know, the higher that you can make the bed, especially in a uh, situation like you just mentioned, the less chance the roots are going to go down that far. And, you know, there's also, there are some studies that do indicate, uh, or the chemistry is there, or the science is there to, talks about how um, organic material will bind certain metals to particles that make it difficult for it to be taken up into the roots. It's a long path, I guess, is the the short answer to what I'm saying is. Although there are risks, uh, you know, depending on what you do to mitigate that, it can be a long path before that risk is really apparent in a plant. And, and then 
depending on what those metals are that get into the plant, usually their ability to, to handle an overdose of metals, something that would be far less than what would maybe hurt you, that plant's going to show you and it's going to, it's going to look very bad when it, if it all of a sudden is subjected to some of these bad chemicals. So they'll, they'll give us an indication if, if that's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Do you line your uh, raised beds with anything? I have not. Um, you know, and in hindsight, I don't know if I would or not. I, I probably would. You know, I've had 10 years now of hindsight to look at how the beds are doing. And I definitely see some decline. I mean, they don't look like they did when I first got them, of course. But um, I would probably look to do some sort of maybe a water base or a linseed oil treatment to the inside of the beds on top of the fact that they're naturally water or weather resistant just because it is such an investment and you know that's you only get one chance to do that and that's before you fill them up with soil because after that that's a big project to to get back in there and work on them oh yeah and now it, it what i was going to say though kathy the one thing i really wish i would have done when i before i filled them was to put hardware cloth in the bottom of them because a few years ago, I started getting moles coming, burrowing up under the beds and up into my soil because it's just so rich with earthworms. That's a mole's dream. And so they found my raised beds and they found a way to get underneath the timber and into the bed. And now they have an all-you-can-eat buffet in every bed and they are the happiest things and they're the hardest things to catch. And I'm not going to poison them. So I don't know how to deal with this challenge that I've been mm-hmm. facing the last couple of years, but as they work their way through the soil, consuming all that wonderful, you know, earthworm activity and whatever else they're eating, they're creating tunnels in the soil around the roots and it's imploding the soil in multiple places in each bed. So as I'm watering or I'm planting, literally this happens a lot, but just Sunday I was watering. I like to hand water. So I'm standing out there watering with my watering wand right at the base of the plant. And all of a sudden it's a seed, it's a healthy little cauliflower seedling. It's doing great. And all of a sudden I hear this, and I look, I look, and it just literally sucked into the void that was created by the space oh. that the uh, mole had created underneath the roots. And it, and it dropped down into the hole right before my eyes. And I, I knew exactly what had happened because it wasn't the first time I'd seen it. But it just makes me so mad that I didn't do that initially. And now I have 30 cubic yards of soil between all the beds that I'd have to dig out if I treated them now with the I may still do it. Yeah. I was going to say that it might be worthwhile to do one at a time, not all at once. Yeah. Yeah. And try to do that. But so for those creating new raised beds, this is great advice. Listen to Joe uh, to line it with that hardware cloth. And that's not the landscape cloth that was referring to earlier, which that's a weed barrier. um, Whereas hardware cloth is metal and wire, not chicken wire because that's too big of a hole. Rodents can come through those. And that hardware cloth is a great barrier, and it's very inexpensive for all types of rodents. So if you have city rodents, woodchucks, groundhogs, and, of course, your voles and moles, that is a great idea. Yeah, and I I, I agree with you about taking it on one bed at a time. I really feel the need to do it, and putting it off is not going to solve my problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe start with just a couple, and then, yeah, it's going to be – then you're going to have to – set your your soil aside in some wheelbarrows or on a tarp and be able to lay that wire back down and then put that back over it. Yeah. And that's the other challenge. It's like each bed is, is four feet wide and 12 feet long. It's like, that's a lot of soil to dig out and, and store for, you know, however long you need to do mm-hmm. it, but you still got to do it. Yep. That that's solvable. I just don't have a quick answer. Yeah. 
just a lot of work. And so that does bring us to um, a few other materials we can talk about before jumping into the sizing. Uh, so I have been sent, and I'm sure you have, Joe, as well, as a fellow garden communicator, member of GardenCom, various types of raised bed kits and things. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if there's any that you particularly like. Um, I was sent one that is literally like a little kiddie pool pop-up, you know, like plastic and with a plastic bottom. And I think it's more meant for rooftop gardens. So if you oh. didn't have growing space in the ground or you had a driveway, it has a bottom to it. Um, so you're just filling it up and it's about six or eight inches high. So basically just a bed. So you could do the same thing, I think, with a kiddie pool, um, adding drainage, of course. And then they have yeah. those big, big um, root pouches type of things, yeah. the, the cloths where you could use those as raised beds um, mm -hmm. and then empty them out of the soil afterwards. I can't imagine putting them on top of soil. I think the purpose of those type of things where they have a bottom with drainage is that they would be on some type of other surface where you're not able to garden already. Um, Cause I yeah. think if you put that kind of felt type material of those root pouches or bags on top of soil, you would have a lot of little you know, slugs or something underneath or need to raise it up on something. It is very true. We do a lot of raised bed, a lot of uh, grow bags around the perimeter of my garden here to find extra space because, you know, we need to rotate out of those beds that we use so much. And I don't have any more room in the garden for any of those other types of uh, raised bed kits that you've been talking about. So I just use the, uh, the grow bags and um, the, the critters absolutely love that environment under the grow bag they find a way to get under there and because it's warm and moist and just such a conducive environment i mean if i were a frog or a amphibian or a rodent i don't know what i i think that would be the ideal place to live but uh and then lots of worms and other things too so mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point yeah earwigs and, and other things yeah oh yeah yeah so i think the last category of materials that i see for raised beds are like steel or stone brick. We talked a little bit about cinder blocks and I see a lot of people doing that in my community garden because very economical, especially yes. old bricks as well is an easy one to oh, do. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the cinder blocks just have more bulk to them and obviously they're very uniform in size and easy to stack and grab. And, you know, you can get a nice size raised bed garden with cinder blocks quickly. And, uh, you know, just the one caution there, as I mentioned before, if you happen to pulverize a bit of it and it managed to leach around your roots, that would be the one thing. But, you know, that's such a remote possibility and yet it exists. So it's worth mentioning as you're, you know, educating people about their options. But mm -hmm. uh, I certainly understand every reason why that that's a easy decision to make. If you're looking to make a raised bed and you've got a limited budget, I mean, that's a readily available product and easy to work with. And that one, because of your precaution, I might even say two line that with the landscape fabric on the edges. Yeah. So yeah, that, might, yeah. that might be a little helpful for that in case you're, you know, thinking it's going to be crumbly or, or have any issues with it. Good point. So the metal ones that I see, like they're kind of the old steel troughs or um, yeah. for animals, like tank stock tanks or t that type of thing that they're based on yes. there's some really nice ones yeah but i always worry and you know in dc we have summer heat but not like atlanta heat and i always worry about how, how hot that metal gets do you think that happens you know i have not actually tried them as a raised bed to measure the temperature 
Uh, I know when we were looking at those options, this has been a couple years now, uh, you know, doing our, um, I think we did a raised bed series for my blog and uh, our podcast and we went into all the details and I think we even wrote, a, we did a resource guide on it and we looked at all the options. And when we got to the metal, the corrugated metal, the, you know, the, the heat was an issue, but it wasn't to the level that I think intuitively would, we would think, you know, if you had blazing sun on metal like that, the heat just going through, it would be extreme. And I just don't remember it being off the mm -hmm. charts of a difference. Well, what I was surprised is, you know, you think, okay, those are galvanized steel, zinc coated metal beds. What's the risk of that metal leaching into the soil and therefore into the plants? But we couldn't find, and this has, again, been a couple of years, but at the time, I mean, we were looking everywhere and we really couldn't find any uh, decisive studies that said it one way or the other, whether or not that was something to be concerned about or not. And I think the the recurring theme we kept finding was that there's just, you know, when when somebody's conducting a study like that, it has to be funded. And nobody was really putting money into that kind of funding to create a qualified study by a university or whoever would do that, come up with a conclusive finding about the input of, you know, the leaching of the metal. So we didn't really have a, an ability to say, you know, they're dangerous or not, or safe or what. It's just something to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen any recent studies or anything on that, but I've certainly seen people using them plenty of times. Yeah. And, and plastic coated ones as well. Yeah. And that's all that goes back to what I was mentioning a minute ago. What we did find with that was the uh, the fact that if you did happen to get some some of those metals that were leaching and getting into the plant roots, they were going to show quickly, you know, that something was off and you were going to have a clue or at least see something was wrong through the plant before you ever had a chance to take it. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about sizing for a little bit. So I've always heard three foot depth is ideal because that's your arm reach from both sides for most of it. But you were mentioning yours are four feet wide. Yeah. As far as width, you said depth. And I'm, when I yep. see, when I say depth, I'm thinking of height, but either way. So when you're reach, when you're deciding how wide to make your bed, I think four feet is realistically the maximum width because you need to be able to reach in, as you said, from any side without being, without putting any weight on the soil. So you got to get in, in at least halfway into the bed. So if it were a four foot wide bed, for example, you need to be able to reach into the center. So two feet in, let's say, but you know, you don't want to have to use your left hand and push down on that. So you can really strain to get all the way across it or wherever, because you made your bed too wide because that compresses the soil. So to your point, Three feet is great. Four feet is great. I wouldn't go wider than four feet. Mm -hmm. I think four feet is plenty. It gives you lots of options. It allows you to reach into the middle, no problem. But a wider bed gets a little more challenging. I mean, it's not, not the end of the world by any stretch of the imagination. I've just found over the years that um, I'm, I'm personally speaking, I'm glad that my beds are four feet and not wider because I do reach across all the way without putting pressure on the... Um, Soil and that's nice, but I couldn't do it at five feet, and that it's no big deal. You get up and move around to the other side, but uh, yep. anyway, just uh, your your point is good. Three feet, four feet, that's ideal. Mm -hmm. And then the length is however long you want it to be. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's whatever works for your garden. There's no rule there. So you got the width for sure. That is important. Uh, and then the length is totally optional. And then there's just height. Mm -hmm. And for that, the depth or the height would be minimum eight inches, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I like eight inches. I've said minimum worst case scenario, six inches, because I've seen 
community gardens on parking lots that are six inches high and the stuff is growing in it. And it doesn't mean that it's ideal or that the plants are really happy, but they find a way to survive by sending out roots horizontally rather than further down as they would maybe prefer to go. Um, so the higher, the way that I look at it, Kathy, is the higher, the taller that you can make the raised bed, the better in a minimum, I'd say eight inches and ideally 12 inches would be really nice. And if you can go in my case, like 18, which is three layers high of that six by six timber, that's a really sweet spot because that to me gives the roots as much room as they would want to grow for most of the things that you're going to be growing. And, um, it's also, uh, like, like if you if your bed is wide enough so you can sit on it, it's a, it's the perfect seating height. Cause 18 inches is the height of the standard chair seat, I mm -hmm. think. So if you have the ability to have a nice wide bed too, that's a perk. Yeah. That's can save your back a little bit and allow you to rest, um, yeah. which is perfect. And so if you go to 18 inches, then you have the next, which is what to fill all of that with. So that's usually your next biggest expense and amount of work is filler. Um, do you ever do anything like layering compost or leaves or straw or anything to take up a lot of that real estate while uh, just doing topsoil on the top few inches? I did not when I filled my beds. I went straight with my soil blended mix that filled the beds. Um, but to take up space, you know, that's, uh, not a bad idea because ultimately it's going to break down it's organic matter and you're just going to have to come in and fill that void as it decomposes. Uh, you know, a lot of people these days are using the hookah culture method and using more structured material to fill that, that bottom portion to take up that bulk. And because it's more random, um, that actually from a drainage standpoint makes more sense because when you have layers of different substrate material, the way that water flows from one layer to the next, it, it actually adheres to the top layer the way that water binds to soil. And so if you can think about a sponge, for example, and you plunge it into water and you just let it fully saturate, and then you pick it up out of the water, there's going to be that excess water that, that falls away from the sponge, and yet the sponge is still saturated. The sponge still has a lot of water in it. And if you squeeze it, you know that because more water comes out. And so when you're filling your raised beds or a container, if you put rocks or pebbles or uh, some filler that has a different structure to it and then put soil on top of that, what you've basically done is you've raised the bottom layer of where the water is going to stand the most. And so just for an example, if you had a 12-inch high bed and 6 inches you put six inches of leaves or straw or something in the base to take up space. And then you came on top with it, the other six inches of soil. Most of that water, it, because of the way, as just mentioned, water transfers, it's going to stay up in that soil level more than it's going to drain out. So because we know drainage is really important in a raised bed environment, you probably want to have more of a randomness to your soil. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons I I kind of like, I've never done hookah culture, but I kind of like the idea of that for taking up space because we know it's going to break down eventually, but we also, because of the randomness of it, that soil that we're adding on top of all of that material is still going to fill the voids and go down the whole way, just, you know, blocked a little bit by some of the stuff in it, but you are achieving your objective 
of using less soil while maintaining the important uh, component of the drainage. Hmm. And do you have a particular soil mix that you use for your raised beds? I do. I have a thing, whether it's perfect or not, I call it the perfect soil recipe, but I it's just a um, kind of a recipe that I developed over all my years working in raised beds for the TV shows, you know, 20 years being out in gardens for TV and, and working with them and using many raised beds over the years. It just seemed like the best combination for me and what I have in my raised beds now is if you can source, and it's a big if, but if you can source really high quality topsoil, which is like, what is topsoil really? Who You know, there's is there really a definition for that, especially when you buy it commercially? Because most people that are selling are making it and calling it topsoil. But to me, topsoil is an is a um, dark, earthy uh, soil aggregates aggregates of particles that um, when you squeeze it together, it binds. But when you run your fingers through it, it breaks away. So that's a good sign. It looks it looks rich. It looks kind of like um, chocolate. What is what is a, what is it that it looks like? Some people will say like a cake mix. Yeah, like a chocolate cake mix. Yeah, but it doesn't smell bad and, and it has the components of, of sticking together but breaking apart. So it's got the right soil structure and texture and um, it's dark in color. And so that's probably a good place to start. Plus, you get recommendations when you're looking for topsoil like that. You know, you go to your independent garden centers or you talk to your master gardeners or those people that you admire that are re- really good gardeners and you pick their brain about where they get their soil. And that's a great place to start because there are some places that sell stuff that they call topsoil that's nothing more than landfill waste because you get plastic bags and cans and junk in it. That's not good garden soil. So anyway, all that to say, spend a lot of time because soil is the most important part of your gardening success. Spend a good lot of time finding really good quality topsoil. And then to that, I would add about 30% what I would call high quality compost. And high to me, high quality compost, first of all, if you can make it yourself, that's the best because you know what went into it to make it. And it's a diverse mix of different things that are organic in nature from outside the house and inside the house with food scraps and coffee grinds and things like that. But the more diverse you can get of those inputs from carbon sources, which are the greens and I mean, sorry, browns and nitrogen sources, which are the green, you can really make some nice compost and that is going to look dreamy when you're when it finally breaks down you know it's going to be exactly what you're looking for and that is dark and crumbly and it binds together just like the topsoil but it's compost and it's a diverse mix of organic matter so for me that's 30 percent added to the 50 percent of topsoil and then the remaining 20 percent is what i provide i, I kind of dish out a list of suggestions for other organic matter and the reason why i differentiate that 20 percent of other organic matter from the 30 percent of compost is that I'm not sure you're making the compost yourself. And if you're buying it, you don't know what was used to make it. It could have just been one, one input that could have been just aged bark that was rotted down to a bunch of carbon. So I want people to have more diversity in their total soil mix. And so that extra 20%, let's specify some of those organic inputs that you can add that's going to improve your soil and break down over time. And we're going to know that we've got some diversity there. So for me, that would be poultry manure that's been aged and mellowed. So you don't put it straight into your garden soil, but you let it just the the nitrogen component kind of mellow out. So it's not burning anything, but that's one thing or rotted straw or semi-composted straw or shredded leaves that have been aged for a little bit 
to um, to mellow out or um, worm castings or uh, shredded plain office paper that's a carbon source or food scraps from inside the house. So there's a number of things that you can add that you can that's readily available that collectively will give you a really nice structure to your soil and diversity and porosity and drainage and water retention and humus and just everything right about the ideal soil mix when you uh, when -hmm. you think about how to blend those components to make it a really nice um, input of just different material rather than just one thing you know Mm -hmm. yeah and I think that's diversity is the key there as in a lot of things and also replenishing uh, maybe yearly, maybe seasonally, depending on what you were growing in that bed. Um, so our last episode uh, was on cover crops, and that certainly could help um, fix nitrogen in your beds. But I find like adding, as you said, uh, uh, aged animal manure, you know, the chicken yeah. manure or goat or something like that, um, when your bed is not being used at that point is a great additive. Yeah. Yes. I top dress twice a year with my homemade compost. And and that's really at this point, all I do, because I'm just adding more of the good stuff to what's already there. And it seems to be very efficient and sufficient for what I'm doing. And, you know, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't just address the fact of cautioning people to use horse manure because it may contain persistent herbicides that will transfer to your soil and severely impacts mm-hmm. certain crops and that stuff just doesn't break down. Even once it's composted, it can last five years or more in your soil because the, um, the components that go into making those persistent herbicides are so tightly structured that they don't, they're impervious to decomposition over time for years. Hmm. That's also a good point about your straw source. Um, so make sure, you know, says organic or you know where that straw came from that it wasn't treated with those same herbicides and definitely this is true and i would say that straw there's a much better chance that straw is not going to be i'm not saying it's it's for sure not to have persistent herbicides but there's much less of a chance that straw would have it versus hay hay is the one you have to really watch out for because that's what uh, that's a forage crop and so farmers that grow hay for sale are spraying their fields to kill off the broadleaf weeds and they're using persistent herbicides for that more often than not. And that's going on hay versus straw to grain. And you're taking, you know, this is the byproduct, the stem is the byproduct. And so they're not as apt to waste money or spend money that they don't have to by killing off broadleaf weeds because they're not needing to deliver a pretty product, a pretty byproduct. They're harvesting the top part. So uh, it's still worthy of a what I call a bi- what is called a bioassay test. I mean, if there was ever any doubt on something that you were going to put into your soil because you were worried whether or not it might have persistent herbicide in it, it's a simple way to um, test that before you you know fill the whole pool with water. You can um, grow a small pot or a few small containers with that soil that you you wonder about as to whether or not it has persistent herbicide. And if you plant some bean seeds in it or some tomato seedlings, it won't take but a few weeks once the seeds germinate or the roots spread out in a seedling for you to know if something's off because you'll recognize that something isn't right. And the way that you know is you plant 
side by side with that into some really healthy, good soil that you know isn't having the risk of any persistent herbicide. So you can compare the two as they grow side by side, and then you'll know. And if you don't see any bad signs, you can safely assume that that what you wondered about having consistent persistent herbicides is clean. But if you see bad signs, don't go anywhere near it with uh, putting it in your garden. Great advice. Um, so now that we're talking about spraying weeds that the farmers might be doing, um, that could probably wind up our raised bed talk about how we handle weeds. And I think for me, Joe, that's one of the cons of why I didn't install raised beds in the first place in my vegetable garden is because I noticed half your time was spent weeding the edge. You know what I'm saying? Right along the pathway, those weeds uh, love to tuck themselves right into that tight barrier <laughs> right there. And you're spending all your time doing that. How do you uh, handle the weeds in your raised beds? So you're talking about the edge right where the soil meets the... the what, at the ground at level. At the ground yeah. level. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> That's true. That's like crabgrass central right there. It's like everything that can get a little little tiny seed foothold in there wants to be there. You know, it is the perfect environment. If you were a weed, that's where you would be too, because it's moist and loose soil and it's getting the runoff from the nutrients and it's it's the ideal environment. So yeah, I mean it happens to me too. But I um in my raised beds, I I always make sure that I'm mulching my raised beds and I love semi-composted shredded leaves for that. And um I always have a steady supply. So I'm never without and that really cuts down a lot on the weeds that are growing in my raised beds, but that does not eliminate all the weeds, but the weeds that do come up are easy to remove because they're usually somehow transported in the shredded leaves and they're not firmly rooted into the soil underneath the we- under underneath the mulch. Uh, so it does take a, just a little bit of time every so often to pluck through the little weeds that are coming up in the raised beds. Um, and I also mulch the pathways between my raised beds, Kathy. So I still get weeds there, but they're not nearly what they would be if I didn't mulch there. But I have to commit time every month or so to a, a few minutes and just stay on top of the weeds in my raised beds. But where the most of the weeds are, as you said and noted, are right there at that crevice. And um, I use a winged weeder, a, a delt, um, what else is it? A scuffle hoe that's got the, the, triangular blade that's sharpened on all sides and it's just a flat plane and I can get under the edge of the raised bed and sever the weed at the root line at the surface. So if I can't simply pull it out, I can usually use my tool and just slice under the, where the the end of the raised bed is and the soil meets, it can get in there and cut it away. But I don't know if you can do that with stone. It's probably not nearly as easy with stones or mixed, uh, mixed raised bed borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be tough, especially if it wasn't a straight, even line. That's that's really tough to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mulching can help. I've seen people place carpeting, old carpet strips down. That's true. On that to try to keep it down and, you know, cardboard or, and then wood chips on top of it can also help. Yeah. And since you're not going to be planting in any time in the near future on the, that material. Yeah. So for wrapping up, any cool raised bed accessories that you would recommend? So maybe a trellis or bars or anything that you use to um, string beans on or anything that you think are is essential to add to your raised bed? Well, I, um, I would say livestock panels. And I, you know, I did come up with a, um, a tomato cage years ago that 
you know, I shared with whoever wanted to know about it. And now it's, they're all over the world, but those livestock panels that you can get at like a tractor supplier or a farm supply store are galvanized metal. They're usually 16 feet long and about just under five feet tall or high, and they're bendable and cuttable. And you can shape them into trellises, whether it's just a flat panel, maybe two flat panels, kind of like leaning against each other for rate for uh, maybe peas or cucumbers, as I do oftentimes in my bed, or you bend them into a cage and cut them appropriately so that you can have the ultimate tomato cage or the smaller pieces that are left over can form a smaller cage for tomato, for peppers or eggplants or growing squash up it. But generically, a livestock panel is very adaptable and um, the utility that you can get out of that, it, it'll cost you about $30. It used to cost $20 before the prices went up a few years ago. And uh, the hardest part is just figuring out how to get them home. You know, but if you've got somebody with a pickup truck or you want to cut them out in the parking lot of the store you buy them in, that's an easy fix. And then it's just a, a simple bending of it and a bolt cutter that you can get at the box store for 20 bucks. And that's literally all you need to accessorize or make a, uh, a resource for your garden that will support vertically growing plants uh, that will last a lifetime because it's, it's heavy gauge galvanized metal. So they're not going to rust. They'll store off site very easily. And you just bring them back out season after season and use them over and over and over. So again, it's a one-time investment like your raised bed material, but if you buy quality, it's going to last and it's, you know, the, the, the cost is going to come down every year because you're going to get another years of use out of it. And, uh, it's a real deal in the long run. So, uh, you know, if, if I know you're going to ask me for, uh, my website or something, but we've got information there. If anybody wanted to see, just put tomato cage into the website and there'll be a post on it and you can see what I'm talking about. Cause it's hard to visualize what I'm talking about, but there are pictures and videos and things like that to see. Yeah. And the cow panels, they have much larger openings. I don't know what they are. Six inch by six inch. They're about six. Yeah. yeah a little less than six, but let's yeah. just say six. And so I like them as for, versus netting or smaller trellises because birds can pop through. Yes. And nobody gets caught in there and yes. any distress happens. So that's good too. Yeah. That's my thing. I don't want, I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And so wrapping up, how would listeners be able to contact and follow up with you, Joe? Yeah, I think the the best way is just my main website, which is joegardner.com. And there, there are links to, you know, the social media and the podcast and the TV show, Growing a Greener World, which has its own site, which is growingagreenerworld.com. But um, joegardner.com is a, is a safe bet for finding me and contacting me or, you know, seeing what all is out there with what we do. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Joe, for sharing all your raised bed experience and your passion for gardening. You are welcome. Thanks for having me, Kathy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Osage Orange Plant Profile Osage Orange, Maclura palmifera, is a tree that bears large, inedible fruits in the fall. 
It is also known as prairie hedge, hedge apple, horse apple, or bow wood. The latter name comes from the tree's use for making bows. The wood of this tree is strong, durable, and rot-resistant. It is also notably made into wagon wheel rims by the pioneers. It is native to Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and portions of Missouri. These trees were planted by farmers and homesteaders as living fences and windbreaks. It grows fast from seed, and this is your warning not to put the fruit in your compost pile lest you want a crop of saplings to emerge next season. The softball-sized fruit is bright green with a bumpy texture. It is covered with hairs and a sticky sap. They exude a somewhat astringent scent, and many people gather them in bowls to use inside as an insect repellent or interesting table decor. The fruit is said to have been eaten by the extinct mastodon, and today the only edible part is the seeds, which squirrels will tear open the green globes to access. Aside from their unique fruits, the bark itself is distinctive with deep furrows and somewhat saggy bottoms. The branches are thick and thorny. The leaves are small, oval, and turn yellow in the fall. It prefers to grow in full sun and is hardy to zones 4 through 9. It's not picky about soil type and is drought tolerant once established. It's said to be a relatively small tree, but can be long-lived. The national champion Osage Orange at River Farm, headquarters of the American Horticultural Society in Alexandria, Virginia, is at least 200 years old and measures around 58 feet tall. Osage Orange, you can grow that. new in the garden this week? Well, it's my favorite time of fall when purple is predominating. I have beautiful beautyberry, asters, toad lily, blue mist flower, caryopteris still holding on, and beautiful still celosia and some other cutting flowers hanging in there. Over at the community garden, the deer fence is being installed and I am about to pull out the last, last, last of the tomatoes and pull any fruits off the vine to donate to our community harvest happening this weekend. In the local gardening world, October 16th through 22nd is DMV Food Recovery Week and you can find out more about that at dmvfoodrecoveryweek.org. There are several events taking place including composting talks, a farm tour of the Coiner Farm in downtown Silver Spring, growing food from scraps talk, etc. The Potomac Rose Society is having their online meeting on Saturday, October 30th at 2 p.m. And that is free and open to anybody who would like to register for that at potomacrose.org. That meeting features the American Rose Society's executive director, and he will be speaking on Great Garden Restoration Project at the American Rose Center in Shreveport, Louisiana. Also free and open to anybody who would like to register and taking place virtually online is the Garden Book Party on Thursday, November 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And that's getting the dirt on four exciting gardening books 
straight from their authors. And that is hosted by the National Garden Bureau and GardenCom. You can sign up through the, for that at the National Garden Bureau page. And locally here, Brookside Gardens Garden of Light tickets are now on sale. You can access that through Montgomery Parks and their Eventbrite page. And that is $10 per person. All tickets must be purchased in advance now. And the exhibit is open nightly beginning November 18th through January 1st from 5.30 to 9.30 p.m. in the evening. It is closed, however, November 21st through 24th and December 24th through 25th. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.